This is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land and water. Hello, I'm Glenn Wheeler and welcome to episode 263, brought to you with listener support. Become a patron at patreon.com slash Matters. Calvin White is a name familiar to most Mi'kmaq people in Newfoundland and beyond. Activist, leader, elder, and now author. His new book is One Man's Journey, The Mi'kmaq Revival in Tadumkuk. It's a personal story, but also a history of four decades that gave rise to the creation, some might say the mistake, of Alibu First Nation. Calvin White tells the story of what went wrong, how things might have been different, and how things might still be put right with strong leadership. Here is the Mi'kmaq Matters interview with Elder Calvin White. And we have on the program Elder Calvin White to talk about his new book, One Man's Journey, the Mi'kmaq Revival in Katumkuk. Elder White, perhaps uh, I could start by asking you why you wrote the book. Was it to, in part, set the historical record straight? Well, not necessarily to set the historical record straight, but to start the dialogue regarding a historical record, because there wasn't anything, to my knowledge, uh, that had been written or had been available in the uh, in a continuous content. There had been a lot of uh, chapters that had been uh, suggested or written by various different uh, scholars, but there wasn't anything in a, in a final print, such oh. as a book that some... Uh, you know, that some student could pick up and read. So that was the inspiration to uh, try to collect at least my memories and put it together. The book begins with uh, uh, a history of, uh, of Flat Bay when you were growing up and um, some very touching uh, stories about uh, you and your father, Gus White, uh, who you say was the greatest teacher I have ever known. And uh, tell us about growing up in, uh, in Flat Bay and how you came to think of yourself as a Mi'kmaq person. Was that something talked about at the dinner table? You know, we're, we're Mi'kmaq people and this is our history. Or was it more informal than that? It, it, was, it was more informal than that. And it wasn't really at the dinner table. What happened was, is that because we lived in a isolated community, um, and there had been there had been a an, an attitude an opinion and, and if you if you want to use those words uh, about the community and the people living in the community, we were we were we were targeted uh, and not in a positive way. Uh, you know, we, we, we were we were always looked down on our community, uh, people from our community. If if somebody uh, went wrong and got in trouble. This happens in every society, in almost every community, unfortunately. But if it happened into our community, then it became it became the news until uh, that died out and something else happened into our community. It was almost as if we were continuously targeted because of who we were and the uh, and the slurs and the derogatory remarks, you know, and the use of the uh, of the word jacketar was a a, a regular. Um, dialogue in uh, in our neighboring community so we were we were in a situation where if we wanted to if we wanted to assimilate or to escape our identity we wouldn't have been able to do it if we uh, 
if we tried to do so. And fortunate for me, uh, not for me, I should say, but fortunate for when I was uh, organizing the Aboriginal movement and right up until uh, when I wrote this book, there was enough written references about that attitude to be able to substantiate what I had been saying and what I had been exposed to as a young person growing up. So, so the evidence uh, was in written form and it wasn't our people who, who read it, who wrote it. It was the people who were using the, mm. that kind of attitude. So when you went to Stephenville, uh, whether you wanted to or not, you couldn't uh, escape your identity. People in Stephenville uh, might look uh, at you and, and assume who you were, not where e- you came from. I didn't even have to go that far. I only had to go to St. George's, which is only eight miles away from me. You know, so uh, yeah, that that attitude was always there, um, and uh, yeah, and there was no escape. Hmm. And and of course, that attitude, you know, to be fair to the rest of the people, that attitude was also found in St. George's and in Stephenville. You know, when I found myself in St. George's in a pool room, um, I wasn't the only victim that would be in that pool room. If you came from uh, an area called uh, Steel Mountain Road today, but back then people called it Dogstown. If you came from that area, like my friends, all of us who I grew up with and, and uh, you know, in the strides and that, the same remarks were, uh, they were targets of the same remarks that I was because they were of uh, the same culture, the same people. Now, you talk about your organizing work and um, and you went to work for the Native Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. And as part of that work, you were traveling around to various communities and you were down in Benoit School, and you were all all across the island, and um, tr- uh, reaching out to people to um, to I guess get a list of uh, of Mi'kmaq people uh, on the island. And what was that like? Because I guess in a lot of cases, uh, people you know were trying to weren't broadcasting the fact that there were Mi'kmaq uh, because there was nothing in it for them. So, did you face a certain amount of um, of skepticism or um, or just maybe puzzlement. There was no question about that. There were a pe- there were people in denial, but there were also people who had no knowledge. They had no knowledge themselves. I I I was very very fortunate because what happened was is that uh, the area that I live in, like Flat Bay, Saint Teresa's, Journals, Middlebrook, all of that area, officials, that had been the area that was. Uh, highly occupied by Aboriginal families. The majority of the families were Aboriginal families and and were were aware and were the victims of the oppression and the discrimination and all that. So like I told you earlier, we couldn't escape it. The thing about it is that the people who live in the various other areas, such as Cornerbrook and and the Bay of Islands and and central Newfoundland and, and a lot of those areas, they had a very strong connection to the people here. The, the, all the Youngs were related. The Kings were related. The Webs were related. So, so when you went to Cornerbrook and you look for a Web, there's a good possibility, not a good possibility, it was definite that you were going to find somebody who had a lot of knowledge about Flat Bay because they would have visited occasionally or maybe more than occasionally, because I remember um, the old lady, the last fluent speaker, Mi'kmaq woman in our community, her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren leaving the city of Cornerbrook and coming and spend their holidays in Flat Bay and spending it with their grandmother. There'd be tents up in the field and there'd be beds on the floor. And, uh, you know, because she had a large family and they were always connected to Flat Bay. Mm-hmm. And that would have been the Webb's line. 
Mm-hmm. And and the same thing with many other families. You know, the connection was there. They continue to connect with our community. And and if I may just one point more is that when people from our community visit those locations, in turn, that's where they stayed. They stayed with those people. They never looked for hotels. They never looked for boarding houses. They went with either their relatives or or their longtime mm. acquaintances. Now, you went on to work for the Federation of Newfoundland Indians, and that's, uh, that's a name that uh, people know because it still exists in some form. And um, you, uh, you quit the FNI over what you call in your book, the fiasco of turning over the Aboriginal resource management system arms to the FNI executive assistant without any consultation. And some people might recall that uh, Ron Jesso, um, a member of our community researched that uh, issue for many years. You couldn't live with that. And, and, and it's a, a theme running through your book uh, over what happened in the following years, a lot of decisions being made uh, by a small number of people, maybe only one or two people, and the rest of the FNI uh, chiefs uh, not knowing exactly what was going on. And I wonder, uh, looking back at it now, uh, perhaps you shouldn't have quit, even with that uh, scandal of the, the arms sale, Maybe if you had stayed around, you could have been a champion for transparency, accountability, and uh, a different way of doing things. So, do you have any regrets that, about that? That I no, no, I don't have regrets because that was well thought out. Like it wasn't, it wasn't an off the cuff resignation or moving away from that. It was something that it was explored. It was something that it was uh, that was talked about. It was something that. Uh, uh, what had happened was I found myself in a situation whereby um, I had I had lost my confidence in the in the entire board of directors. I lost confidence in 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 people taking responsibility and holding up to their, to that responsibility of representing the people who elected them, not representing their their personal wishes or their personal thoughts or or, or that of uh, of a small number of people uh, there was no support there whatsoever like I I was targeted uh, not only myself but uh, also Hayward young we were the two people who were more outspoken than anybody else I guess around the table and we and we wanted transparency we wanted accountability and we wanted people to hold up and 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 to be chastised for uh, for uh, for these type of things because if not you create an environment of entitlement and once you create that environment then uh, you lose control of uh, of whatever you're and whoever you're trying to serve and so i had explored all of the possibilities in fact there was at one point in time that i even ran um, uh, for an executive position uh, for the very same reasons that you just mentioned is that uh, i felt that my experience my knowledge my involvement in the organization could uh, could be a, a contribution, especially into a negotiation process. Uh, but uh, that uh, it was clear to me that I was no longer uh, desired uh, or wanted by the people around the table, and uh, and I felt that in the best of uh, the best of interest would be to walk away from it. For me, uh, one of the most interesting parts of the book is uh, your discussion of something called the 2002 regime, uh, which was a kind of uh, governance structure for um, for Mi'kmaq Newfoundland. Tell us about the 2002 regime. 
what had happened is that the Federation of Newfoundland Indians um, realized that there was a possible, real strong possibility of a negotiation. Uh, in fact, there had been hints of a negotiation versus the uh, court challenge. And uh, what happened was a, a, a researcher was uh, contracted from, uh, from Ottawa, somebody who had worked quite extensively with Aboriginal people with regard to putting together these type of, uh, of proposals or, or uh, whatever you chose to name them. And a gentleman by the name of, of Bob Groves, he was contracted by the Federation of Newfoundland Indians and he came to Newfoundland met with the various councils and talked about their their plans their desire of what they saw their vision for for the uh, for a negotiation should that become uh, apparent and finally what happened was is that there were four representatives from each of the nine bands brought together for a two if not three day uh, conference whereby you know flip charts were used and everybody uh, broke into small groups and everybody came up with their priorities and uh, what they saw as being a realistic uh, undertaking. Also something that would be, uh, would be uh, hard to be able to reject by the federal government because precedence had been set uh, much higher than what was being requested in, in the 2002 regime, that being the Con River Agreement, uh, what was happening in Labrador. And also there had been a... Uh, there had been a commitment by a previous minister to correct uh, the uh, the neglect of uh, the rest of the province in Newfoundland. So therefore, this 2002 regime document had been put together. And in that document, I, f I felt, and so, so did the other people who were in the room, because it was unanimously supported as being the document that should be moved forward for the... Uh, for the for the negotiation should a negotiation become available and that document i i felt it important to include it in the um, in my book um in the annex because i wanted people to see exactly what was the position of the uh, of the directors of each of the communities who gave us our direction with regard to uh, preparing that document so yeah, and uh, and it's and it's, and it's quite uh, the structure here would have been um, much different than what we have now because you would have the the bands the individual band uh, bands in the FNI uh, the St George's band the Five Bay band and there was a Corner Brook band etc so they would have remained in existence with their identity and uh, the new structure would have been a tribal council. Uh, so the bands would would stay, and it would the tribal council will be, I guess, going to Ottawa to represent the collective interests of the of the of the bands. So this was the the shared vision at that time. But what we got with um, with Halibut was something completely different. It was there was one one band, Halibut, and at least initially the other bands kind of like disappeared. A lot of them went were you know just went out of business. Yes, um, and and that that was one of the things that I was afraid of, Glenn. Uh, when we were writing and uh, and doing the work on the two thousand and two regime, one of the things that I was very cautious about, and and I um, and I advocated was not to erode the structures of the bands because that's where the capacity building was taking place. Like if you uh, if you take away the autonomy of the local people of the which was their band council, then what happens is that you create a dependency 
uh, from another perspective. In this case, it would be from the top down. And people uh, won't be engaged as much as they should be engaged uh, because now there becomes a dependency on this other institute who's going to who's supposed to be doing all of the activities and all of the work. Uh, but when you, or at least I believe that when you have autonomy at a local level, it's in it's uh, it's upon the uh, it's on that group to be able to uh, to you know to define their uh, their priorities, their activities, and to try to move them forward. And of course, yes, you're so right in describing the tribal council. And the tribal council was to be nothing any more than the advocate group. They were there for two reasons. The tribal ground council would be the advocate group. Uh, they would be our, our political structure at a provincial level that would negotiate and take on challenges such as the one that we face with regard to the registration process where so many people is in, so many people is out. That would be the role of the tri tribal council to challenge that. Uh, because, of course, we couldn't have nine band councils going to Ottawa with nine different agendas. Uh, you know, priorities would be set by the by the chiefs of each of the bands, and um, and yes, our government structure would be the tribal council. Mm. You say of of Halibu that uh, there's little cultural funding, no housing at the community level, no local band administration, and nothing more than what I see as another level of power, um, and. You think that our world would be a different place if the 2002 regime was implemented? I, I'm convinced of that. Of course, I have no other choice but be convinced of it because it was it was the vision, it was it was the planning, and and all of those you know some 36 people uh, were party to that planning, and they and they agreed with that. And it wasn't only mice doing; it was the doing of everybody that was involved in that uh, in that particular um, de delegated group to work at that. So uh, so yeah, I'm 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 a firm believer that it would have been different. Well, at, for the first thing, the band councils would have had the responsibility of defining their membership, uh, we probably wouldn't have the mess that we're in with regard to, you know, uh, twins, one being Indian, another one not being Indian, because the band councils would have moved their uh, membership. They had membership from the time that they were organized in the 70s. And that would have been the paper that would have been moved forward. And that those are the people who would become members of those bands. Mm. So, uh, so I think a lot of the uh, problems that we encounter today would have been corrected the other thing about it is that you're so right. Uh, I did say uh, there there were no other uh, very little uh, program services offered in the uh, in the Hollywood structure because it was just education and healthcare and administration for one band, which is the Hollywood band at the top. Um, therefore, the the uh, the local bands, many of them ceased to exist. It was only after a number of years when they realized that it wasn't working that they, they've, uh, they've since tried to, uh, to the best of their ability, reactivate their bands. The only band I think that never, uh, for a short period of time, uh, closed would have been the Flat Bay Band because we, we realize as the importance of, uh, of having our own autonomy and our own structure, mm. and we just refuse to fold. And uh, and I guess the other bands saw the benefit of that, and now there you know there's been a real uh, striving move to reactivate. However, they're still at a handicap because they have no revenue to do it. You mention uh, enrollment, uh, and in the book you say that the Mi'kmaq of Newfoundland have become a joke to the rest of Canada and to our Mi'kmaq brothers and sisters. The enrollment 
issue is remains unresolved. There are court cases and um, there are bitter feelings. Do you think that this is something that will be, will be with us forever? Um, because uh, though we have some small numbers coming in under the, uh, the armed forces deal, we will still have many of the situations you refer to a brother in a brother out two people from the same family. Is this a curse that will remain with us forever? It'll remain with us forever unless we find the leadership that decides that this no longer can be the norm. And, uh, and we have to uh, worry about biting the hand that feeds us. And we have to challenge from every level. We have to challenge the wrongs that has been created by that process. And, uh, and, and, you know, and, and, uh, and there are processes, I think, uh, I, I've explored the possibility and there are processes that probably could be implemented implemented to, uh, to make some changes. But uh, it's going to require strong leadership and, and the will to uh, not to worry about threatens or, or being cut off from this program or this other program. That's the divide and conquer and the control of a bureaucracy. Uh, we have to push that aside and we have to realize that we have a responsibility to the people who's been uh, neglected and, uh, and, and, and deprived of their, uh, of their right. What kind of process do you think could be tried that haven't been tried uh, thus far? Well, I haven't heard anybody talk about the human rights uh, process. I haven't heard anybody question the uh, the UNDRIP. I haven't heard anybody question uh, the if necessary to go all the way to the uh, to the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, you know, all of these processes have not even there. To be quite honest with you, I don't even I don't even hear any dialogue about uh, about a want or a desire to correct it. It mm. seems like people are very satisfied with the status quo. Mm. people other than the people who have been deprived. So how do you feel right now in 2023? We've just gone uh, through uh, five powwows on the island of, of Newfoundland. We have our, our very own powwow trail. We have lots of interesting culture, uh, even among people who didn't get their status. They still have embraced uh, their Mi'kmaq culture. As that old saying goes, we have the best of times and we have the worst of times. Yeah, we, we have a lot of good things happening. I would I would never be critical of that. In fact, I participate in all of the five powwows and uh, and and you know and do so whatever is happening and will continue to do so. It's it's uh, it's great. It's fantastic. And and there's a lot of good work being done by Hollywood. There's no argument about that. I'm not questioning that at all. However, there is a there is a very serious unfinished business that needs to be attended to, uh, because if not attended to the uh, the uh, the existence of our organization will dwindle and we won't be around for that much longer and uh, the evidence uh, for that while i didn't uh, suggest it in my book is that many of the people who the only way that they could get their status was to become uh, 62 instead of 61 which means that it stops with you mm. uh, once they're gone their children will no longer be recognized under any federal recognition or any federal type program, because they will not be deemed to be Indian. Mm. So we're we're you know we're 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 the last of a dying. We we were we were uh, we didn't even exist in 1949 when Joey Smallwood uh, entered Confederation, even though there was all kinds of documentation. Well, in not too many generations from now, unless there's some correction to the injustice that has been done. Uh, we will cease to exist again. 
today is much different than the 1970s when you were doing the work that you describe in your book. Um, but there's still, there are still many challenges. So turning, if we were, could turn back the clock and you were just starting out as a, as an activist, you were in your early twenties and, um, taking on the challenges, what you, what would you be doing right now in 2023 to, uh, address the, uh, the challenges facing big mob people in Newfoundland? Uh, I think I would leave tomorrow morning and I would start exactly doing the same thing that I did in the 19 early 70s. I would travel to those communities. I would meet the Indian people who I know. I I would ask them to uh, to to share with me their uh, their situation with regard to their refusal and their rejection. I would ask them to give me copies of their historical documentation, which substantiates their families pre-Confederation, anything pre-Confederation, such as an old trapping record or a, or a guiding identification or maybe some census where Indian people have been, tar- have been identified in the census. I would take all of these documentations which substantiates the eligibility of those people, uh, not by hearsay or by somebody else's affidavit, but written documentation pre-Confederation. I would take these documents and I would go to Ottawa with with a membership um, supported by these documents, and I would uh, I would request and negotiations to have those people either included into the Hollywood ban or the creation of a new ban. And if that fails, then I would I would address the other issues that I spoke to you earlier about, which would be I would go to the Human Rights of Canada, I would go to UNDRIP, and if necessary, I would go all the way to the Supreme Court. Mm. But we need we need leadership to address that issue. It cannot be forgotten. Mm. Because what it was, it was nothing other than political genocide. Uh, you're talking about the events that led to the creation of Halibu and exactly. the 2002 exactly. regime. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, Elder White, there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot in this book about um, the the history, the the high points and the low points. So, required reading for anyone interested in where we got to where we are today. One more point I'd like to make is that uh, while while the book starts off uh, about me and uh, and 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 the community, that was not uh, you know that that was uh, deliberate uh, for the simple reason that I want. You know, I want young people, uh, young Aboriginal people out there to realize that you don't have to come from uh, what is considered to be an elite society or a rich or a famous society. You can come from a lay family who's struggling. My father was no more than a lumberjack. uh, And you can make changes if you have the truth on your side. And in my particular case, I had the truth on my side because there was historical documentation to support the people that I represented at that particular point in time, that documentation is still available. So it only requires somebody with a little bit more stamina that I have at the age of 81. I, I don't think I could take that on now, but uh, but I'm sure that there's somebody out there willing and ready, and hopefully they'll take it on. So there's work to be done. Elder White, thank you very much. Thank you, Glenn. Appreciate it. Our interview with Elder Calvin White. His book, One Man's Journey, The Mi'kmaq Revival in Tatum Cook is available online from Memorial University Press or from Amazon. And that's it for the program. Look for us on Facebook, X, and Instagram. 
introducing our new website, MiGmaMatters.com. Allison Baker is the producer of Mi'kmaq Matters. I'm Glenn Wheeler, Emson Okamata.